If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Napoleon Bonaparte. He'll be answering our call on December 16th, 1820, while in exile on the island of St. Helena at the age of 50. Napoleon's rise from a soldier to the Emperor of France was rapid, to say the least. By age 45, he had already fought dozens of epic battles all over the world, been Emperor of France twice, was exiled to the island of Elba, escaped exile on that island to reclaim his place on the throne, and then was exiled again to the island of St. Helena, where he has been for the last five years. Although Napoleon's history is well documented, in the end, he did lose. And if history is written by the winners, you have to ask yourself how much of what we know is actually true. I'd heard that Napoleon's soldiers used the Sphinx in Egypt for target practice, yet his explanation why this is impossible is difficult to refute. There's a story that he drowned and bayoneted thousands of soldiers that had been captured in a battle, and yet once again, his reasoning for this story makes complete sense. But far beyond the wars, the conquest, the stories of him placing the crown on his own head— after hearing him tell his side of the story, it becomes clear that his goal had always been to improve the lives of the people that he ruled. At the end of the second episode, you'll hear about the battle at Waterloo that ended his reign. Had the weather not been against him, it is very likely that he would have won that battle. And then, honestly, who knows what would have happened next. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and very average-sized men everywhere, I give you Napoleon Bonaparte. Hello, is that you, Emperor Bonaparte? Indeed, monsieur, it is I, l'Empereur Napoleon Bonaparte, l'Empereur des Français, Roi d'Italie, Protector de la Confédération du Rhin, etc., etc. It is me. <laughs> well, sir, I got to tell you, I am so excited to speak with you today. My name's Tony Dean, and I am talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were standing next to each other on that godforsaken island of St. Helena. And it allows me to share a record of our conversation with people around the world so they can hear the truth from you and instead of from your enemies. And, sir, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today, but before I do, I understand that this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you might have first? Yes, I find this rather fascinating that you have such a device that would enable you to be in contact with all throughout the world. I wish I had known of such a device, and perhaps I could have put it to good use during my time back in France as Emperor of the French and not here upon this godforsaken island of St. Helene. I think that you would have put this device to incredible use because when I look at the history of your battles, to be quite honest with you, the way that you would move men around from one place to the other, it, it looked to me like you were able to communicate with them very easily. I mean, when I think of the battle of, I think, forget the, forgive my pronunciation when I get it wrong, but I think there was a battle called Austerlitz where you had men moving all over the place until eventually you had the enemy surrounded and 
I don't even know how you coordinated that, but yeah, I think you would have put this to uh, to good use for sure. So so you right now are on that island, aren't you? And I'm again, I may be saying it wrong. St. Helena, are you on that island now? Indeed I am, unfortunately. I had been exiled for the first time in April of 18 and 14 to the island of Elba. But hearing the cries of my countrymen back in France and knowing of the incompetence of Louis XVIII or Louis XVIII, who became uh, king of France, I returned. I escaped from that island and returned. And unfortunately, after the hundred days, as it is often called, that of the campaign of Waterloo that completed on 18 June 1815, I was forced to go back into exile. And those at the Congress of Vienna had decided that I would be sent to an island 1,000 miles off the coast of Africa called St. Helena or St. Helena. And there I have remained since 1816. What, is, what year is it right now, sir? Well, of course, it is 18 and 20. Oh, I keep forgetting you are from the future, so you are not quite certain. But indeed, monsieur, it is the 16th day of December, 18 and 20. Well, considering all the good that you did for your country and all of your accomplishments, as I learn about your history, I'm actually surprised that this is where you ended up because there is a you clearly were fighting for your country as if it sometimes that it appeared that was the only thing that you cared about. But before we get into that, and before we get into some of the things that you've just mentioned, what can you tell me about this island? The island of St. Helene juts out from the Atlantic. It is really a rock. When you go to the principal ports, such as that of Jamestown, the climate is a bit more agreeable. But as you climb up into the mountain, unfortunately, where I am situated, at a place called Longwood, the climate is very humid. It is very disagreeable, uh, bad for the health, and I am of the opinion that the English simply want me to die here. This was discovered in the 17th century. It really is jutting out into the Atlantic. There is not much to it. No doubt over the millennia that have passed, it was through some sort of volcanic change in the world. That is how the island was in fact created. The English often use it as a port for shelter in time of storms, but also as a time to rest their ships as they are going across the Atlantic. But for me, I find nothing agreeable about this place. What do you have there? Do you have books? Do you have men? Do you have women? What, do you have food? What do you have there? Indeed, I was allowed three officers to accompany me and 12 servants. There are people who live upon this island, civilians as well. There are soldiers, as many as 3,000 English soldiers that are billeted here upon the island. And there are some of their naval personnel that are sailing perpetually around the island to ensure that no one will try to rescue me. So I am only allowed a small complement of people to join me. Absolutely, I am allowed for books. I do not know what I would do if I did not have books to read about the great history of the past. I am a firm believer that all of the answers to the future might be found in the past if we study our history. And I have always been a student of history. So I read perpetually. But as to the activities of the day, there is not really much to do. 
I will typically take a daily ride about the island, but again, there is not very much to see and very far to go. And unfortunately, I am always escorted by an English soldier to ensure that I don't get myself into any mischief. I don't quite understand that. Where do they think I am going to go as a result? But nonetheless, those are my daily activities. It's an interesting statement when you say, where do they think I'm going to go? Because I'm guessing that they probably felt the same way in Elba. And when you were in Elba, you definitely found some what they would have considered mischief, and you found a place to go because you ended up back in Paris, correct? That is correct. And Elba, in reality, just off the west coast of Italy, very close to the city of Pisa, is really very much like a miniature version of my home where I was born, that of Corsica. Uh, the climate is very agreeable there. Uh, there is a notable chateau or castle uh, where I situated myself. I was really king of Elba. I had a complement of 1,000 soldiers. I was able to make some reforms upon that island, such as improving the road system and things of, of that nature. But being that the island of Elba was even smaller than that of St. Helene, I uh, grew bored as a result of that. But really, what inspired me to leave was the poor conditions back in France with the rule of Louis XVIII. So I almost felt compelled to leave. But being that I did it once, I suppose I believe that my jailers believe that I'm going to try to do it again. So thus they have doubled their efforts to ensure that I will not ex escape from the island of Santa Helene. I'm really confused. When you had said that the English maybe are putting you on the island hoping that you might just suffer and eventually die, I don't understand why the English don't kill you. I mean, the two of you are responsible for the deaths of so many of each other's soldiers, and they are going to great lengths to make sure that you are on this island and you cannot do, as you've said, mischief or anything that you would want to do. Why, do they, why don't they just kill you or poison you? Why do they have to have all this manpower to protect the island and always be watching you, considering that what they're trying to prevent you've already accomplished once? Why don't they kill you? Come now, Tony. I am a sovereign. I am the ruler of the country of France. I had an empire. You do not kill sovereign. I am not some sort of criminal. <clears throat> and the statement that you have made, saying that I am responsible for the deaths of all of these, in reality, from the wars that began in 1792, when the Republic was declared in France, all the way through 1815 and the battlefields at Waterloo, of the seven coalitions that were pitted against me, I started but two of those wars. The rest of those wars were started by those in Europe, whether they be the English, the Austrians, the Russians, or the Prussians. So I do not think it is fair at all for you to accuse me of being responsible for the deaths of all of them. I simply wanted peace. But they brought war, and I concluded those wars. So for you to be so bold as to say that I am responsible for that, I think is a misinformed response. And as a result, I do not think that sovereigns should be put to death, especially when I was looking after the betterment of the people of France. First of all, I want to thank you for putting me in my place because that is the purpose of this conversation so that people can know the truth. I have read extensively of your history, 
and I, I feel like I've barely, barely even touched it as much as I've read. And what you tried to do for your country, and I believe that you were fighting for peace, I believe everything that you're saying is true. So in the future, if I accidentally say something that is offensive, I appreciate you setting me straight because there is no question in my mind that your intent was to make life better for the people of France. I, I, and I think when I think about this, I think about when you started putting in the uh, Napoleonic Code in and you had made all kinds of changes with your people. I understand that you did things for education, and could you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. So when you think of France and our revolution, we think of the 14th Juillet, the 14th of July, 1789. The revolution in France was very different from that of the revolution in America. The Americans initially wanted independence. They wanted to create a new country. In France, uh, we initially did not. We simply wanted to alter the monarchy from an absolute monarchy to a constitutional monarchy. And that was achieved by the 6th of October, 1789. But not all of the 24 million citizens of France were content with a constitutional monarchy. Some were in favor of a republic. Indeed, the Americans did well with their republic and the French felt that we could do well with the republic as well. So it would be declared in August of 1792. But the problem was, is that the king and queen of France were arrested for crimes against the state and they were sentenced to death. So when you sentence to death what is arguably at that moment in time the most powerful monarchs in all of the world, well, it makes the rest of the monarchs of the world rather nervous. So mm. they all invaded France. So France had a conscription army. She did her best to defend herself against the English, the Austrians, the Prussians, the Russians, uh, the Spanish, the Portuguese. Even the Pope in Rome was content with sending soldiers to try to put down this revolution. But we held off as best we could. The problem was is that the governments of France began to change very quickly. We had gone from that constitutional monarchy to the convention and the republic, headed by the committees of public safety, headed by men like Danton, Saint-Just, Marat, and the most famous Robespierre. And many of them were more interested in themselves than they were in the 24 million citizens in France. So they would be overturned by 1794. Thermidor, according to the revolutionary calendar, Robespierre was put to death. The Directoire would be created, headed by Paul Barat. And this was an incompetent government. This is when I came into being. This is where I found success at Toulon in 1793 and 94, and where I found success against the Royalist mob in October of 1795, where I was given command of the Army of Italy of 1796 and 97, where I was dispatched to Egypt in 1798 into 1799. But upon my return back to France, I discovered that this government, the Directoire, was truly incompetent, and there was time for change. Out of the chaos that came from this revolution, we needed order. We needed security, and I would be that security. So I took part in what we call a coup d'etat, a seizure of government on the 9th and 10th of November, 1799, and I would become one of three consuls. And being that we did it alphabetically, I would serve first, being my name is Bonaparte. It was during that time that I did my best to bring about an end to war. 
for France had been perpetually at war since 1792. So by the time of 1802, where I was actually declared consul for life, meaning that the other two consuls would not serve, I would be in control. And being that I had found peace with the Treaty of Amiens in March of 1802, finally France was at peace, and it was time for me to create these reforms. In France, in the northern part, you had many of the Germanic law codes. In the south, you had many of the Roman law codes, meaning that for those 24 million Frenchmen, there was not universal law for all people, and all people were not equal under the law. So that was obvious that I needed to reform the legal system. And thus I created the Code Civil, or it is better known today as the Code Napoleon, bearing my name since I was so influential in changing that. So whether you are in the north, the south, the east or the west of France, all the law will be the same for all of its citizens. I was able to create the Banque de France. This bank would be beneficial for all of the citizens of France, for investments, for the future of the people of France. I would create schools and universities, not only for the enlightenment of the individual, but to create better leaders for the future. And these schools would not be limited to men. Some of the schools that I was able to create were actually for women as well. I would create the Légion d'honneur. This medal would be given not only to soldiers for distinguishing themselves upon the battlefield or upon the high seas, but could also be given to scientists, to authors, to actors, to anyone who was able to do great things. And it would not be limited to just Frenchmen, but anyone who was worthy of such a thing. I was able to create new roads, monuments to the glory of France. There was no unemployment during my reign as first consul. So the people of France really prospered during this time. It was a Pax Romana. It was a golden age for France, and there was no war as a result. I hope to economically strengthen France as a result, and so my reforms were endless. But unfortunately, the English did not abide by the Treaty of Amiens, and war would soon follow. So in that short period of time, I was to create order out of this revolution, but continue to spread the ideas of liberté, égalité, fraternité, liberty, equality, and brotherhood, not just within the confines of France, but across the border, wherever France might have influence. So you can see, Tony, that this was really a golden age for France. So when the English broke the treaty, what happened? What, what was the step that they took that broke the treaty? Well, there were several requirements as a result of the treaty. Much of my army had been left back in Egypt and would not depart until 1801. The English were to evacuate Malta. They were also to remove themselves from Holland and the Netherlands. And not all of this was abided by. Being that they were not abiding by this Treaty of Amiens, many of the requirements of France, we felt if they are not going to abide by it, then we will not abide by it as well. You must understand, throughout this entire age, was the financier for all of the coalitions against France. There is a deep-seated hatred of England for France. I think you could perhaps say, it is very much, uh, to use an analogy, like two brothers. They are always vying for who is stronger, who is bigger, who is better, who is faster. 
and we are trying for dominance upon the continent of Europe and in reality across the world with the various colonies that we have. So we constantly come into conflict as a result. And I think this is a result of that, that they simply did not want to abide by this treaty because I think they were more content with going back to war with us. It seems like when it comes to war that you spent a large amount of your time at war. And I know you said you you only there were only two wars that that you were responsible for starting. I'm curious what those two were. The war in Russia in 18 and 12 and the war in Spain that began really in 18 and 7 when I sent one of my generals into Portugal and it turned out to start what we call the Peninsula War that would last from 1808 to 1814. In those situations, when you started those two wars, and again, this is a small percentage of the wars that you were involved with, but were you not doing exactly what the English are doing, always looking to take over additional land? Oh, not in the least, Tony. When you think of my intervention into Portugal and into Spain, what I was hoping to do was to spread the ideals of the revolution in France, what I had just mentioned, that of liberté, égalité, fraternité, liberty, equality, and brotherhood. Indeed, Spain was a longtime ally of the French. When you think back to the various wars of the 18th century, whether it be the War of Spanish Succession in which a Bourbon, that of the Bourbon family, would be put upon the throne of Spain, whether it is the War of Austrian Succession from 1740 to 48, the War of Polish Succession, the, war, the Seven Years' War, all of these wars found France and Spain, for the most part, on each other's side. So I was hoping that this once again could be an alliance between the two of us. But unfortunately for Spain, being that it was a long time since she was the reigning great power upon the European stage, had become outdated. Her armies became weak. Her government became incompetent. So those Bourbon kings and queens upon the throne of Spain were really incompetent and not looking after the betterment of their citizens. So I thought this was an opportunity for me to not only spread these ideals, but once again create the alliance and bring about a change that would indeed be for the betterment of the people of Spain. The war in Russia that would begin in 18 and 12, that was brought on directly because of Tsar Alexander. He did not abide by the agreement that we had made at Tilsit in July of 1807, as well as what was echoed at Erfurt in 18 and 8. There was a promise being that Alexander swore to me that he hated England as much as I did. And the only way for us to truly defeat England would be economically. So I created what I called the Continental System, or some would call it the Berlin Decree of 18 and 6 in which I closed all European ports to English goods. So thus, if the English cannot sell their goods or trade their goods, they will be hurt economically. But because Alexander is so in favor of his English wool and his English tea, he opened up his ports, breaking the agreement that we had made at Tilsit and at Erfurt. And so thus, I told him that if he was going to persist with this, he would come to war once again with me. And that is what occurred in June of 18 and 12. It seems like he was, the Tsar was very short-sighted because he wanted wool and tea 
over all that could be accomplished by this continental system. My understanding, by the way, of this continental system is basically you were trying to make it where the English couldn't get their goods. You were just completely closing them out to put pressure on them economically. Do you feel like, as you look back at that, that was a good decision? I think it was an excellent decision. It was unfortunately difficult to maintain because I can put out the order that all ports will be closed to English goods. But it is up to the individual or the sovereign of the state that I have issued this order to, to enforce it. And many of them simply wanted the pleasures of the trade, whether it be the Madeira, whether it be the wool, whether it be the tea, whatever English goods they are in want of, sometimes they would turn a blind eye to it. And so thus, if it is not enforced, it will not work and the English will not suffer economically. That was the biggest challenge. I think the plan overall, if it could be enacted and if it could be enforced, would have ultimately brought a downfall to England. They are a nation of shopkeepers. That is how they survive. That is the only way they survive. So if they cannot make their money, they cannot fund the coalitions against me, they cannot fund their armies and navies and wars against me. When you say people turned a blind eye towards it, my understanding is that at that time there was smuggling was out of control. That is absolutely correct. And the authorities should have further enforced the end of the smuggling as a result. I think, unfortunately, many of the officials were being bribed and paid or given some sort of benefit if they did not look in the direction of the smugglers. And so thus the English goods continue to come in, they continue to be paid, and thus my economic system, continental system, Berlin decree, failed as a result of that. So let's go back for a minute. When you were talking about going into Spain, and things were not going well in Spain, and you were trying to improve the quality of their lives with some of the rules that you were putting on the citizens in France. As I look back at something that you had said about the French Revolution, and after the, I think it was the king in French, he was sentenced to death, and then France was weak, and so all of the other nations tried to move in. On Were they not trying to do the same thing that you were trying to do in Spain? Why else would they have moved into... I mean, France was in trouble. I mean, France was, you're in revolution. Was that not the exact same thing? No, it is not at all. The sovereigns of Europe invaded France in the latter part of 1792 because they did not want the ideas of the revolution to become contagious. Yes, a republic is one thing, but arresting the king and queen of what is arguably at that time the most powerful monarchs in all of the world and then sentencing them to death is another thing. They did not want the same thing to happen to their sovereigns, whether it be the emperor of Austria, the emperor of Russia, whether it be the king of England, whether it be the king of Prussia. They did not want these ideas to come into the minds of their citizens because they, in turn, just like the king and queen of France, would be overturned and republics would be declared, and they would no longer be sovereigns of their kingdoms. So their invasion was to crush the revolution and these ideas. But as you know, if I even look back to the revolution in America, 
of reading about the great Washington? Did he not speak of that metaphoric tree of liberté, that once it is planted, it will continue to grow and spread its branches far and wide across the globe with those ideas of liberté, égalité, fraternité. So there is really nothing that they could have done. But at that moment, they wanted to crush the revolution and crush those ideas. I, on the other hand, entering into Spain, was going to spread these ideas and create reforms, have a system of merit in which the person best suited to rule or to lead or to govern would be put in place, as opposed to someone's birth or someone's wealth or someone's family. I think it was really for the betterment of mankind. So your goal was to create a system where the person who was best suited for a job, to rule, to govern, whatever, that person would be in that position, not where it would go from father to son and, and maybe end up with somebody that was completely incapable of running the country, just beca- but he was somebody's son. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. A system of merit that you will be elevated by your ability as opposed to your name, your family, or your wealth. You simply need to look at my soldiers, those men that some of them rising up from the rank of private soldier to Marichal de France. A good example of that is Marichal Murat. He commanded my cavalry. He at one time was a stable boy, but decided to join the army, succeeded in the army, through his merit, through his valor, through his bravery, through his ability. And eventually he was elevated to high ranks. I noticed him. I made him one of my aides-de-camp. Eventually I made him a general officer. And then in 1804, when I created the new marshalette, I made him one of my marshals. And that was simply because of his ability. And of the 26 marshals that I would create, many of them came from very humble origins and simply elevated themselves by their ability and by their merit. And this is not limited to just the military. It is also to the civilian world as well. I care not of what your family background is. I care not of how much money you have within your purse. What I care about is your ability, your knowledge, your intelligence, and your willingness to serve the state. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because... As competent as your soldiers were and as competent as your government uh, – the people running your government were, I mean there was a lot getting done, and it's because you were not relying on people that couldn't do the job. You were finding people that could do the job, which raises the question. At the time where you were the, the emperor of France, if somebody had risen up, maybe a political rival, but he had been more competent than you, would you have been willing to step aside to let him be – Take control of France? That is a fascinating question. There was no one who was more competent than me. I was elevated because of my ability. It was felt by those around me that I was best suited to rule France. I did not declare myself emperor of the French, but rather I was voted to be the emperor of the French on May the 18th, 1804 and the great coronation would take place on the 2nd of December, 1804. So, obviously, this shows that I was the most capable. And for several reasons, not only my intelligence, my ability to create these reforms and to make a better France, but also because of my military knowledge and ability. 
that I could lead my armies and end a war, and instead of waiting all this time for the diplomats and ambassadors to go and negotiate a peace, I could negotiate that peace immediately, being that I was not only the general in command of the army, but I was also the sovereign of the kingdom, rather, of the Republic of France. And with all of that, that made things move much more quickly. I could initiate these reforms, these changes. I could negotiate the treaties with the enemy by myself as opposed for waiting for someone else. And that is a rare quality for you to not only be the sovereign of a nation, but also be the head of the army of the nation. I was able to accomplish both of these goals in one. There is no question. There is a very small number of people, you could probably count them on both hands, that have been able to accomplish something like this all at the same time. It's just too much. Yes, I would look back to the great Alexander the Great. I would look back to the great Julius Caesar. And in even more recent times, that of King Frederick II or Frederick the Great. All were capable of such things. Is Alexander the Great somebody you've done a lot of reading on? Somebody that you admire? Oh, to be sure. He is an inspiration, to be sure. I read much about the great captains of the past, the great generals, the great leaders, and Alexander is first amongst them. In fact, by learning about his campaigns, I am able to apply them to the battlefields of this modern age that we are in at present. Hannibal, Julius Caesar, all of those great captains of the past are inspirations to me, and I read a tremendous amount about them. You might like knowing that in this time, there are many of your battle strategies that are in the books that people read right now that are still used in my time. That does not surprise me, I must admit. I have made many great innovations in strategy and tactics, but the reality, there is nothing new under the sun. I am a firm believer that all of the answers to the future might be found in the past if we study our history. And my, by me applying the tactics that were used by Alexander at the Battle of Gorgamila, or applying the tactics that were used by Hannibal at the Battle of Cannae, or the Trebia, or applying the tactics that Julius Caesar used at Pharsalus or Alessia, it will make me a better general for the future. And in reality, I have used all of those tactics and strategies in my modern battlefields. Look at the Battle of Austerlitz, the 2nd of December, 1805. I applied some of the same tactics that were used by Hannibal at the Battle of Cannae, a double envelopment of the enemy, and I was able to form a battle of annihilation and destroy the coalition that was placed against me under Francis I and Alexander. So, you can see, Monsieur, though I am glad to hear that your generals and statesmen of your present day are utilizing my strategies and tactics. But again, there is nothing new under the sun if we study our history. Well, luckily, the adversaries that you've faced over the years haven't read as much as you have. <laughs> Perhaps they have. They just have not applied it correctly. Yeah, that's possible. So you had said that you did not declare yourself the emperor of France and that the people declared that. And yet there is a very famous painting of you standing in a room full of people and they're all standing around and you are in fact putting the crown on your own head by definition that seems to me like you are absolutely declaring yourself the emperor especially considering 
if my understanding is correct, and please correct me if it's not, but during those times when an emperor was crowned, it was done by the Pope, but instead you did it by yourself. So how is that the people declaring you the emperor? Can you clarify that? Come now, Tony. You are an intelligent man. I am certain that every painting that you look upon, you do not take as fact. There are fantasized moments in history that are created through paintings or through etchings or through wood carvings, whatever it might be. And the same holds true for some of the paintings that have been done of me. I believe you are referring to the great painting that I commissioned by Jacques-Louis David, the court painter of mine a superb artist of the neoclassical style. And I requested of him that he paint the moment in which I was crowning the Empress Josephine. When it was decided by the Senate, and the Senate is composed of elected individuals, representatives of the people, when they decided to vote to make me emperor on May the 18th of 1804, I accepted. And when the coronation came, it was all planned out ahead of time. I had invited the Pope to come and attend the ceremony, but I had informed the Pope that I would crown myself, unlike Charlemagne in 800 AD on Christmas Day in the city of Rome being crowned by the Pope, in which he would be obliged to obey the orders of the Pope and the Catholic Church. I made a definitive separation of church and state. One of the great accomplishments that I neglected to share with you was creating a concordat with the Pope in Rome in 1801. In 1794, France had abolished all religion, whether it be Catholic, whether it be Protestant, whether it be Hebrew, whether it be Muslim. No one was allowed to worship within France. In 1801, with this concordat with the Pope, I brought religion back to France, but not only back to France, but allowed a freedom for religion. So you could worship as you please, whether it be the Catholic faith, the Protestant faith, the Hebrew faith, or the Muslim faith. All were free to worship as they see fit. So by bringing the Pope, I was actually married with the Empress Josephine the night before the coronation, for we had not been mar married in the eyes of the Catholic Church. We had a civil marriage, or a state marriage, I should say, on March the 9th of 1796, so it was not recognized by the Catholic Church. So by bringing the Pope in Rome to marry us the night before, now we were officially married in the eyes of the church. And so thus it is an expectation of sovereigns, whether they be kings, queens, or emperors, to be married in the eyes of the church that they are worshipping. So that is why the Pope was in attendance for that, to not only marry us, but also to witness this ceremony and to show a definitive separation of church and state. So, unlike what many paintings or stories have told, I did not grab the crown out of the Pope's hand and place it upon my head. It was already prearranged that I would crown myself in that show of separation. And then, of course, being that I am the emperor of the French, it was my responsibility, my obligation to crown the empress, of which that is immortalized in the great work called Le Sac or the coronation by Jacques-Louis David. 
And as you can see, the Pope is in attendance with his cardinals. He is giving his blessing to our reign. So I hope that brings clarity to you, Tony, and an understanding that I was not some sort of madman grabbing a crown from the Pope. Yes, much clearer. Thank you. You had mentioned Empress Josephine. I would like to hear a little bit about your relationship. It seemed that you were deeply in love with her, and yet when, this is going to sound cold, and forgive me if it does, but once she was unable to provide you with a child, that love disappeared somewhat. Can you tell me a little bit about that relationship? Well, first of all, Tony, the love has never disappeared. She indeed is the love of my life. And when I first met her, in fact, it was at the time of me putting down the Royalist Revolt in October of 1795. She had been previously married to a member of the aristocracy, a man by the name of Alexandre de Beauharnais. And the empress was not born in France proper, but in one of the colonies of France on the island of Martinique. And so her family arranged her marriage at a very young age. And as a result of that marriage, she had two children, a son named Eugène, who served me well as Viceroy of Italy, and a daughter named Hortense, who would in reality marry my brother, Louis, as King of Holland. But the marriage was a volatile one and did not work very well. And Alexander uh, had many affairs. And Josephine was very upset. So eventually, when the revolution would come, and Alexander de Beauharnais became a general officer, and because of his failure at the siege of Mayence in the Holy Roman Empire, he was sentenced to death by the guillotine. Josephine was sent to imprisonment with her two children, and it was while she was imprisoned during the terror that she was quite fearful that she too was going to be sent to the guillotine. But once Robespierre was overturned in July of 1794, the vast amount of prisoners, as many as 40 to 45,000, were eventually released. And that is when I came into contact with her. For I had put down the Royalist Revolt with what we call the Whiff of Grape Shot on the 5th of October, 1795. I met with Paul Barat. Again, he is a man who was the head of the Directoire or the Directory, the government that was in place that replaced Robespierre. Uh, he introduced me to her. And I must admit to you, from the moment I cast eyes upon her, I was in love. The reality is, Tony, she was known as Rose, not Josephine. But when I began my relationship with her, I did not want to call her as others called her. So I referred to her as one of her names, that of Josephine. And that began to stick. She simply referred to me as Bonaparte for all of my life. So we would be married on the 9th of March, 1796, I mentioned, in that state marriage. It is interesting to note, because of my success in putting down the Royalist uprising, I was given command of the Army of Italy in 1796. So I did not have much time to enjoy what you like to call a honeymoon. But I must admit, I was also a bit late for my marriage ceremony, for I was studying maps of Italy. And I lost track of the time, and I was a few hours late. So as a result, the magistrate that was supposed to marry us had gone home, 
And when I arrived, I demanded that we be married immediately. And the only person that was there to conduct the ceremony was actually a clerk. But I demanded that he marry us anyway. And so thus we were married as a result. I had been madly in love with Josephine. And I would write her sometimes two or three or five times each day during the campaign of Italy. When I eventually returned, when I invited her to Italy for a short time, she was nearly taken prisoner by the Austrians, but fortunately she was able to elude them. And eventually when I was given command of the expeditionary force that was to attack Egypt, I would soon discover that unfortunately Josephine had betrayed me with having a lover, a man by the name of Hippolyte Charles. This broke my heart. And eventually I would return back to France and I thought this marriage would come to an end. But eventually we would have a reconciliation, and by the time I became first consul of France, all was well. And we would remain married. But when I became emperor, there was much pressure upon me to have an heir. And when it was soon discovered that Josephine was now incapable of having any more children, it was thought that perhaps I should annul the marriage and marry again with someone who perhaps could have children. And so thus, on the 14th of December, 1809, the marriage was, in fact, annulled. And I would eventually marry the Empress Marie-Louise, the eldest daughter of Emperor Francis I of Austria. But that being said, the Empress Josephine retired to our home called Malmaison on the outskirts of Paris, and I would visit her quite often. Not only visit her, but I would write her just as much as I had done during the campaign of Italy in 1796 and 97. As the campaigns began and continued, as the Russian campaign and the disasters that followed that, the campaign in Germany of 1813 and the disastrous battle of nations called Leipzig, and then the campaign de France in 1814, and then I was sent into exile. The tragedy was as while I was in exile on May the 29th of 1814, the Empress Josephine succumbed to her illness and passed on. A great tragedy, a great loss, for she has always been and always be the love of my life. The only reason for the divorce was so that I could have an heir. And the Empress Marie-Louise did produce me with an heir in 1811, but the tragedy was that I was hopeful that I could remain married to Josephine if only she could have produced me a son. Marie-Louise, was she aware of your feelings for Josephine? Yes, she found a small painting, a handheld painting of the Empress Josephine under my pillow. So I think she understood her station as Empress and my feelings towards the Empress Josephine. Concerning the affair that Josephine had while you were away, what was that person's name? His name was Hippolyte Charles. He was a cavalry officer, but a cavalry officer that had not seen much action before, so I have uh, no respect for him. But she did not tell me of this affair. While I was in Egypt, a dear friend who I had met at the siege of Toulon uh, named Junot informed me of the affair. And uh, that was a catastrophic moment when I heard. At first, I did not believe that my wife, my new wife, could possibly cheat on me with such a man. But the reality was 
Upon my return, Josephine would admit to me that she did have this affair, but that she would put it to an end, and she did. She kept her word. Did, just by chance, did the cavalry officer have an unexpected accident somewhere? He has disappeared from the pages of history. I am not certain of what happened to him, other than I know that he resigned his commission, and probably for good reason, because he would not want to be an officer in my Grand Armée. I asked the Empress Josephine never to speak of him again, so I never thought of him again. It, it is amazing to me when you say that you showed up two hours late for the wedding. What, what was Josephine's reaction to that? Well, by that time, she understood my habits and my ways, and she realized that I was about to take command of the Army of Italy, but she was not really pleased that I was late, but understood that this was my character. Okay. So you had mentioned uh, a minute ago about the, the whiff of grape shot. I've heard that term. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because this was a, an important moment in, at the beginning of your career, correct? That is absolutely correct. So I had found great success during the siege of Toulon in 1793 and 1794. I was but a captain of artillery and without a command. And I had made my way south where Toulon is to be found along the Mediterranean Sea. And being that the artillery commander during the siege had been wounded, they were in need of some expertise in artillery. And so General Cartu gave me temporary command of the artillery, in which I made a promise that I would remove the English and their allies from the port of Toulon. And so after arranging batteries and making assaults upon their fortified positions by 1794, we had evicted the English from the port of Toulon. I was then made uh, a general of brigade, and I was able to go to Paris. While I was in Paris, and again, Paul Barat, part of the Directoire, the government at that time, informed me of this royalist uprising. There was a segment of the population of Paris, a city of about 650,000 people, and this segment of the population numbered about 40,000. They were in want of overturning the republic and restoring the monarchy and bringing the younger brother of Louis XVI, Louis XVIII, back to the throne. So Paul Barat requested of me that I set up some sort of defense of the government and put down this rebellion. And I told him if he gives me full command, then I would do such a thing. I dispatched a young officer, a man that I had mentioned earlier, a young captain of cavalry, his name was Joachim Murat, to a place called Sablon. And at Sablon, there were 40 cannon available. And I had him seize those cannons and bring them to the center of Paris on the right bank of the River Seine. I set up various batteries around the government, and when the royalist uprising became violent and began to attack, I was able to fire my guns to put down this rebellion. And so thus, a type of shot that will come out of an artillery piece is called grape shot. They are small, almost musket-sized balls that you will place within the cannon, so when they shoot out of the cannon, they will spray and knock down whatever is in front of them. Thus the name grape shot because they look very much when they are in their canvas encasement like grapes on a vine. 
but they are much more violent than grapes on a vine. And when I fired upon the mob, I immediately was able to put down this uprising. And this was on the 5th of October, 1795. Some of the most pivotal action took place near a church on the right bank of the River Seine called Saint-Roche. And it is there that you can still see the marks from the great shot in the side of the church where I was able to put down this rebellion. It was a pivotal moment for several reasons. One, it had saved the government. And two, it has given me more notoriety, which in turn would eventually give me command of the army of Italy, in which I would, of course, find great glory and honor, and it would propel my career to the stratosphere. Now, this is all happening when you were very young. Were you not in, were you not in military school when you were... I, you were in your teens, weren't you? Indeed, even younger than that. So the island of Corsica, where I was born, was actually purchased by France in 1768. Prior to that, it was owned by the Genoese. But the Genoese, they had really lost their empire and they were in need of financial assistance. And that is why they sold Corsica to the kingdom of France. So thus, by one year, because my birth is August the 15th of 1769, I became French. But the reality was I did not even speak French. But because the Bonaparte family was of uh, the petite nobilité, the lesser nobility, my father, who was a lawyer, Carlo or Charles in the French, was able to find a, an opportunity for myself and my elder brother, Joseph, to go to France to study. So thus, we were dispatched to the Kingdom of France. And the first school that I attended before I was even a teenager was the school at Autun. And at Autun, I would learn to speak French. And then I would be sent to the school at Brienne. And that was a military school where I would learn to be a soldier. After Brienne, I would go to the École Militaire Royale, which is the most illustrious military school in all of the world, and that is found in Paris itself on the left bank of the River Seine. And there I would become commissioned as a sous-lieutenant, a second lieutenant at the age of 16 in the French artillery. And that would be by 1784. So here you are an officer at 16, and I can't say the name of that battle. What was the name of that? Well, it was the Royalist Uprising of 5 October 1795. Yes, okay. So that, that Royalist Uprising. So at that time, here you are, you're young, very young. They put you in control of artillery to, to push these people back. And my understanding is that you are not a large man. I mean, you're a large in mind for sure, but you're not very tall. Is that correct? I am average height. I okay. am one meter six eight, or what you Americans might call five foot six inches tall. That is the average height for a Frenchman. Oh, I think is. once again, Tony, and forgive me, but I must correct you again. You are reading too much into English propaganda. Oftentimes, when the English depict me, they depict me as being very small with a very large hat and a very big nose. It is meant to be derogatory, and of course, it is not factual. I would not find myself to be overly short, nor overly tall, but average in height. 
one meter six eight or five foot six inches tall. I do not find that very short at all, but very average. I wonder how much information I have came from English propaganda, because they certainly portray you as a very short man who nonetheless has accomplished a lot. But I, I guess I've always wondered what it was about you that was able to command loyalty so quickly from soldiers. That is a superb question. My love of the army, my love of my soldiers, is what endeared me to them. I would endure all of their hardships. In that first major engagement that I took part in, that of the Siege of Toulon, I led from the front. I would do everything that I would ask my soldiers to do, and even more. I rarely left the batteries of artillery during the siege, often simply taking my cloak and having it cover me underneath a gun carriage during the course of the siege. Whether the weather be rainy or hot or cold, there I would be amongst my men. I inspired their loyalty. In fact, that man that I had spoke of named Junot, he was a young sergeant in the French artillery, and I created a position that was very close to the enemy's position in which they could bear their artillery upon it. And I called it the Battery des Hommes Sans Peur, the Battery of Men Without Fear, inspiring these men to look within themselves to find that courage, to overcome their fear, and to place themselves there while they were being bombarded and fire back at the enemy until you could silence their guns. I would be willing to give my last meal to my soldiers to inspire them to continue to follow me. And that is how I believe I earned their respect. Sometimes, and it was early in my career, in which some of my soldiers referred to me as le petit corporal, the little corporal, because sometimes I would actually sight their cannon, find the position and trajectory of the cannon, just like a corporal might do in a gun battery. So that endeared me once again to the soldiers. Even in my dress, I was very plain. The uniform that I typically wore uh, was that of a colonel's uniform, not a marichal, not a great general, not a king or emperor, but a colonel's uniform. And the great coat called the Reading Goat, which I wore, was that of a private's great coat. So in its simplicity, in my show that I was one of them, it also endeared me to my men. And there upon the battlefield, they would see me, always at the hottest point on the battlefield, where the action was fiercest where I could encourage them, inspire them to do great feats, to go above and beyond, to show this great courage like no other soldier before. I would inspire them with great phrases. I often said that impossible. You write to me, it is impossible. I tell you, that word is not French. Showing these men that they could do the impossible if they simply had the will and desire and courage and fortitude to go forward. And that is why I had such loyal and obedient soldiers that would go to the end of the world to find victory for the Empire of France. You have described yourself as intelligent, and rightfully so. And you have described yourself as being confident of running the military and the government at the same time, and having the best interest for the people, and all that it takes to do all this at the same time. 
And yet, how does it make sense for somebody, a, a, a one, one, one in a million, one in a billion type person such as yourself, to be on the front lines where the bullets are flying? If you were lost in one of those battles, what would happen to France? Indeed. It is uh, one of the dangers of being a soldier, but it was really my responsibility to instill this courage and motivation within my men. So it was a risk that I had to take. You know, I was wounded at the Battle of Ratisbon in 1809 during the Austrian campaign there. It was only a slight wound across my left ankle, but many of the men thought that I was more grievously wounded and there was a great concern, but all it did was inspire some sort of vengeance for my soldiers wanting to inflict more damage and harm upon the enemy. If I were to be slain upon a battlefield, indeed there would be a line of succession in which someone would come after me, a member of my family, in which they would become the sovereign of France. But I felt always that it was much more important for me to be there amongst my soldiers and the heat of battle at the hottest point in the line to motivate them than it would be for me to be back in Paris where there was no danger at all. How could I inspire them to do great things? How could I win these battles if I was not with them, directing them, showing them the way? The campaign of 1814 is an excellent example. Some of my detractors, most notably the English, often said that I was never the same after 18 and 9, that I had lost my ability, my generalship, that I was unimaginative as a result. You simply need to read about those campaigns of 18 and 14, of Vauchamp, of Champaubert, of Montmirail, of Chateau-Thierry, in which with a fraction of the forces, that were against me, I was able to inflict great defeats upon them. And with young conscripts known as Marie-Louise, young boys of 17 and 18 years old, going against veteran troops, and I was still able to defeat the enemy. I had not lost my coup d'oeil, my eye of decision, my ability in the field. And it was these men, through my inspiration, through my uh, ability to be with them at that point of contact, that inspired them to do great things. Well, there is no question about, in, in our time or in, in any time, of your courage or your genius, that is for sure. And I, I'm wondering how you deal with fear, and I'm wondering how you deal with the fear of death. I mean, is that something that you experience on the battlefield? I am not very concerned with death. When it shall come, I imagine it shall be a long sleep. But to deal with death upon a battlefield where... Every rational soldier will be fearful. No matter what anyone says, a soldier will be fearful upon the battlefield. But it is what you do with that fear. And that is called courage. I have heard many definitions of courage in my life. But one I like best is the ability to do what is right or what is asked of you, despite the presence of fear. So thus, look within yourself, above and beyond, Look to the soldier to your right and to your left. Look to your mission, to your objective, to the glory and honor that awaits you, and go forward. And that is what inspires me, and that is what I try to inspire my soldiers with as well. When I listen to Napoleon explain his position on different topics, especially things that did not go his way, I wonder, is this an excuse that he's making, or is he right? 
because his answers are hard to argue with, because he believes them with conviction and acts with confidence. It's hard to say for sure, but I will say this. I do believe that his explanation for losing Waterloo that you'll hear at the end of the next episode was very real. Had the weather cooperated, he may have been Emperor of France for a long, long time. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. If you haven't yet, subscribe now, and we'll see you at the next episode of the Calling History Podcast with part two of Napoleon Bonaparte.